Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles today to two places? First to Psalm 22. You can put your finger there. And then we will turn also to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. Psalm 22. Beginning in verse 4, would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Psalm 22, verse 4, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them, to you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And then to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Thus ends the reading of God's word, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. The passage before us today describes a coronation ceremony. For you kids who may not know what a coronation ceremony is, a coronation ceremony is where a king or a queen officially is given the crown of their country. You know what a crown is? It's that sort of uh, majestic hat that is a symbol of authority and royal dignity. And so you see in placing a crown on someone's head, it testifies to their honor and their majesty and the authority that belonged to them as a king. Uh, In a little less than a month from now, on May 6th, people from all over the world are going to tune in to watch the coronation of King Charles III of England. It promises to be a day that will be filled with celebration uh, and with pomp and pageantry. On that morning, King Charles is going to don a kingly robe, 
uh, and he's going to travel from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, and he's going to travel in that, that famous gold state coach, and he's going to go in procession among the royal guard as hundreds and thousands of his subjects line the streets to cheer him on his way. And then during the ceremony, a golden scepter is going to be put into his hand. And a glorious royal crown is going to be placed on his head. And he will move from the coronation chair to the throne where his peers will come and they will kneel before their king and pay homage to him. The coronation ceremony is, of course, not going to make him the king. He became the king when Queen Elizabeth died. He's already the king by hereditary right. But that coronation ceremony is going to be a public and formal recognition of his kingship. And so everything about that ceremony is going to be designed to give honor and glory to the king. If that is true of the coronation of the king of England, if men can bestow such honor and glory on an earthly king, if they can show such fealty and love to him as their Lord, how much more true should it be of the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And yet how different is that in kind from the coronation ceremony of Jesus that we find here in the scriptures before us today? Far from being reverent, it's rude and revolting. Instead of being designed to show honor, it is crafted and designed to shame him and humiliate him. Rather than being filled with celebration, it's filled with pain and sorrows. Here in this grotesque distortion of a coronation, we find our Savior enduring the most savage agonies We find him being exposed to the most shameful indignities, so much so that it's hard to read. But we also find him embodying the most perfect expression of divine royalty. And so as we consider this difficult passage today, I want us to look at it under these three points. We're first going to consider his endurance of agony. Secondly, we'll consider his exposure to indignity. And then finally, we'll consider his embodiment of royalty. His endurance of agony, his exposure to indignity, and his embodiment of royalty. In the last passage, we looked at the people's sad choice of choosing Jesus Barabbas over Jesus, who is called the Christ. They were set before us, one as a militant warrior type of savior, the other as a humble, meek savior, gentle and lowly. I mentioned how they are intentionally set before us. Barabbas means the son of the father. They are both named Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? Savior. They are set before us as two kinds of saviors, and the people have a choice to make. And they make this terrible choice. And when the people make this sad choice, we read that Barabbas released for the, or that Pilate released for them Barabbas, 
And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now bear in mind that Jesus has already been maligned and maltreated by the Jews. We read in the last chapter about how they spit in his face and they struck him and they slapped him and they they called out to him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, you King. Who who, Who is it that slapped you? But now... Jesus has been transferred to the hands of the cruel Romans, the Romans who have literally perfected the art of agony. And the first thing that Pilate does to Jesus, remember, whom he believes to be an innocent man. But the first thing that Pilate does is he has him scourged. We need to pause here and not run over those words too quickly because all four of the Gospels record for us that he was scourged. It's an important detail of his sufferings. It's only three words in Matthew's account, having scourged Jesus. But contained in those three words is a punishment so brutal that it almost defies our ability to comprehend. And yet I think it's important for us to try Because the scriptures tell us that it's by his stripes that we are healed. The ESV translates that word in Isaiah 53 as by his wounds we are healed. But the word literally means something like slashes or gashes. That's why the older translations went with by his stripes. Uh, The the point is that this is part of his curse-bearing as one who forgives our sins and heals our diseases, our healing, our forgiveness depends on his stripes. And oh, what stripes. What terrible and horrific stripes. Without wanting to be unnecessarily graphic or gratuitous, I think it's important to help you appreciate what your Savior actually endured in your place. The Roman scourging was a severe judicial penalty that consisted in beating a man nearly to the point of death. An instrument was used that was specifically designed to inflict severe bodily injury. Unlike in a Jewish beating where the victim would lay face down on the ground and so have his front side protected, the Roman scourging, the victim would be tied or chained to a post so that the muscles in his back would be taunt and so that the whip might extend around to the front side of his body. The sort of whip that was used was called a cat of nine tails. It was not like the long sort of bull whip that we are familiar with, but a short leather whip with nine leather tails extending out from the handle. And then attached to each of these tails would be shards of bone, metal, and glass. They were intended to slice and dig into a man's flesh. And these nine tails would often whip around the body, sometimes blinding the victim, sometimes knocking out their teeth, often breaking ribs, But it obviously caused the most severe damage to the back and to the belly, literally shredding the flesh and exposing bones and ligaments. In Psalm 22, 
The psalmist says, I can count all of my bones. Eusebius describes the scourging that was endured by some of the early Christians at the hands of the Romans. He says that all around were horrified to see them so torn that their very veins were laid bare, that their inner muscles and sinews and even their bowels were exposed. It's difficult to read. It's even more difficult for us to think that our dear Savior endured this sort of agony and to contemplate that he endured it in our place as our substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. If we have peace with God, if we have forgiveness, if we have justification, if we have healing of soul and body, it's because our Savior had stripes. It's because he had wounds. It's because he had agony. And yet as severe and horrible as his agonies are, we should not let them overshadow the terrible indignities that accompany them. The suffering and sorrows of Christ are not limited to his physical pain. As terrible as it was, it extends to the shameful and humiliating indignities that accompanied that pain. So think of the indignities here. As we move from his agony to his indignities, we read that having scourged Jesus... The soldiers of the governor took Jesus then into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Already having been subjected to the indignities of his own people, to their demeaning false accusations, their slander, their twisting of his words, their physical abuse, now is added to that all of the indignities he receives at the hands of the Gentiles. It's as though the whole world is present, participating in this crass coronation ceremony, which is exactly how we are meant to understand this. It's a mock fest of a coronation. If he's a king, they're going to give him the royal Roman treatment. And so the whole thing from beginning to end is designed to shame him and humiliate him, and it begins as they lead bruised and bloody Jesus from the scourging to the governor's headquarters, where the whole battalion gathers around to watch the spectacle, and the spectacle spectacle begins by stripping him naked. I don't think I need to say much about the indecent indignity of being exposed before all of these crowds. the king of modesty, the king of glory. 
Before they dress him up, they will undress him. They will expose his nakedness to the jeering crowds. And then over his naked frame, so that all he wears, they drape a scarlet robe on his raw and gaping shoulders. If the king of England receives a crown and a scepter, so does Jesus. But here they twist together a crown of thorns, and they press it into his forehead. And in his right hand, they put a stick of a reed. And once they've dressed him in mock array, they begin to taunt him, and they ridicule him, taking turns as they pretend to pay homage to him. One by one, they kneel before him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then in turn, they get up, they spit in his face, they take the reed from his hand, and they whack him on the head, driving the thorns even deeper into his brow. And the verb indicates that this is a repetitive action over and over again until their cruel and vile sense of amusement is satisfied. And once they've had their way with him, they strip him again. They won't waste a robe on this weak and sad excuse for a king. And so they put his own clothes back on him and they lead him away to crucify him. The agony and the indignity are hard to comprehend. But in conclusion, I want you to consider the embodiment of his royalty. You know, just like the coronation of Charles doesn't make him a king, so the coronation of Jesus does not make him a king. He is the king by right. And in a way, this coronation is a coronation of truth. Because Jesus embodies royalty. He's the embodiment of royalty, both as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, and as the long-awaited Son of David, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as horrific as this is, how can we not at the same time appreciate how appropriate it is? How appropriate in light of the plans and purposes of God in sending His Son appropriate in light of who Jesus is and what he's come to do for all of their mistreatment and all of their mockery and all of their malignment. Their coronation is the coronation that he has chosen. You might remember that earlier in his ministry, after he had performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, what did the crowds want to do? The crowds who had just had their bellies feel, filled, and they were, they're feeling fine, right? The crowds who were enamored with Jesus' teaching as one who taught with authority. The crowds who had just witnessed this incredible display of power and provision in their miraculous feeding. This is a king who can provide. This is a king who's powerful. What did the crowds want to do? They wanted to take him right then and right there and make him a king. In fact, so great was the impulse that John tells us that perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him their king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You know, they talk in politics about not missing your moment. If ever there was a moment to ride the wave of enthusiasm, this was it. This is the kind of Savior they want. They look at him like they looked at Saul, a man of power, a man who can perform powerful signs, a man who could stick it to the Romans. But what does Jesus do when he perceives that they're about to come and by force make him a king? He withdrew. Some variants read, he fled. Jesus runs from that kind of coronation, from that kind of caricature of his kingdom. He runs because he's running to the cross. This coronation of sorrows, this coronation of shame and humiliation and suffering is the coronation that Jesus chooses because he is going there for us. He's the king who comes to take the place of his subjects, who comes to share in our sorrows and misery, who comes to suffer the shame and curse that is due to us for sin. It's not accidental that the shame of nakedness and the pain of thorns are the emblems of his kingship. How can we read about these things without having our minds transported back in time? All the way back in time. To the beginning of time, to the garden, back to a man and a woman in rebellion against God, back to sinners ashamed of their nakedness, in need of a covering, back to the words of that original curse, cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. As the crown of thorns is pressed onto the head of Jesus, it is as though the curse of God, the very curse of God, is being pressed into the head of the sin-bearer. The curse of God against all his people, indeed against all of creation, so fittingly symbolized in thorns, tears into the head of the substitute. Here's the promised one. Here's the one spoken of way back in the garden, the seed of the woman, the victorious one who's going to come and to bruise the head of the serpent. But who in bruising the head of the serpent will himself be bruised? The son of the woman, the son of David, the son of God. He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he's despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes... We are healed. I can't think of a better way to summarize this substitutionary reality than by quoting a passage from J.C. Ryle. It's a bit of a long passage, but I think 
it so perfectly captures what I would want to say. Was he scourged? It was that through his stripes we might be healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a malefactor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths was that we might live forevermore. That we might be exalted to the highest heights of glory. The very key to peace is a right apprehension of the vicarious sufferings of Christ. Our sins are many and great, but a great atonement has been made. What do you do with this? How do you respond to this? Do you join with the soldiers in their scoffing? You join in the mocking and the jeering at Christ and at the message of Christ? Or are you better than that? Are you like Pilate? He's an innocent man and you wash your hands of him and say it's not my problem. Do you join in with the Jewish leaders, call him blasphemous, seditious, attempt to discredit him? What do you do with bruised and bloodied Jesus? Do you call him Lord? Do you? Do you see him as your king? As your substitute? As your savior? Do you see that this is what your sins deserve? Do you see that you deserve to stand there in his place? Beloved, I pray that we would never be so captivated by his royalty as when we are considering his agony and his dignity. What kind of a king is this? That he would do this for us. It's here as Jesus goes to the cross that his royalty is displayed in all of its glory. If you want to see the the glory of God most perfectly put on display, you must look at the cross. Christ displays the glory and power of his kingdom in the most unexpected of all places. It's in this shame and humiliation. And he calls on us to take up our cross and to follow him, to be conformed to the likeness of his sufferings.
My goal today has really been just to put Jesus before you. To tell you the story of what the Savior endured. And to call you to faith in him. May God help us to look upon his agonies and indignities and to find in him our sweet Savior. And may God help us to bear up under the agonies and indignities that we endure for his name, that we might prove out the royalty that we have in union with Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, We marvel that you would do this for us. Lord, you know our hearts. Even while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son for us. You gave your Son to this horror, to the most cruel and barbaric schemes of man, to suffer the curse, to suffer our misery, our pain, to bear our sin and our shame, and to do all of this so that in your being unclothed, we might be clothed, that we might be dressed up, not in the garments of mockery, but in the garments of glory, in the righteous perfections of Jesus Christ that we might be crowned with glory and honor, that we might not have death but have life. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to convict us and to show us what our sins deserve, to show us the price that you were willing to pay in order to redeem us, to give us a more and better appreciation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord, to hail you as our King and without shame to own you as our Lord. We pray that you would work this in us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. That idea of substitution is seen beautifully here at the Lord's table, isn't it? As we just sang, mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. And here in this meal, the sacrament says the same thing to us. It speaks of the deadly pain that was due to us for our sins. The bread represents the body of Christ, and as it comes to us today, it, it comes torn into pieces reminding us that our Savior's flesh was torn for us. The wine, as it comes to us today, it comes to us poured out, reminding us that our Savior's blood had to be shed and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. There is this exchange, but here in this meal, Jesus then says, Take, eat, drink. This is for you. 
and do this in remembrance of me. Here at this meal, the, the death of Christ is applied to our hearts afresh. Uh, his blood covers our guilty consciences. By his wounds, we are being healed. And so as we come today to this meal and as we receive these things in faith, we receive Christ and all of his benefits for us. All of the the great benefits of our salvation are ours uh, once again in the application of this meal. And so this meal is for those who have received Christ in faith. Because this is where you receive Christ in faith. And if that is true of you, if you have received Christ in faith, if you have come to him believing, resting, trusting in him for your salvation... If you belong to his church, have his name put upon you in your baptism, and you are walking truly in faith and in repentance. Not that you are not sinning, you are sinning, but that you are repenting of those sins. You long to be free of those sins, and you want to follow Christ in more and better obedience. If those things are true of you, then you're welcome to come and to join us in this meal. But if those things are not true of you, There's a sober warning in this meal. Because the warning is that all that Jesus endured, you will have to endure on your own. If you do not receive Christ as your substitute, you will have to undergo one day the wrath of God for your sins. But now is the day of salvation. Now is an opportunity for you And so if you do not know Christ and you want to know Christ, even if you might let these elements pass today, I would call upon you in the name of Christ to come and be reconciled to God through Him, through faith. Well, as we come to this meal, let's come and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements then and set them apart for this holy use for our sakes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We thank you that you you give us sensible signs. You put into our hands your body and blood. And you call us to eat of you and drink of you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take these ordinary elements now, that you would set them apart and that you would use them as a means of your grace to us. Lord, we come burdened by our sins. Our consciences are guilty. We know that we deserve all that you endured. And yet today, you remind us that by your stripes we are healed. Heal our wounded and guilty consciences. Cover over us, Lord. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.